Good morning, everyone. I want to read this morning's scripture. You will find it in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 31. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 29 to 31, where we read, By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask for the help of your spirit this morning as we consider the truth of your word. May it affect us in every way that is good and right and that we need. In Jesus' name, amen. A few years ago, um, our missions partner in Central Asia met a young Muslim woman named Hadassah uh, on the beach one day. And as they were getting to know her, uh, she shared how she was in emotional and mental distress and wondering where God was in all of that. And as they began to speak to her, or I should say they began to speak to her of their hope in Jesus and that he has power to give her peace for her mind and her emotions, but ultimately peace with God, forgiveness with God for now and for all eternity. They shared the truth of the gospel message in Jesus, and she believed that proclamation, and she put her faith in Christ. She knew that she had to share uh, this faith with her family because she believed God's word that says that we are to be witnesses for Christ. But for her, in a Muslim land, this was a potentially dangerous act of faith. Telling her family could uh, end up, at the very least, in being disowned by them at the most being put in jail or perhaps conveniently killed. But she did share her hope in Christ with her family and that she wanted that hope for them as well. This was risky faith, but she trusted God's word and his promise to be with her, whether it went well or not. Did you ever do something that you knew God wanted you to do? Clear from his word. Even when it seemed impossible or looked foolish or might even cause you a lot of trouble, may even be dangerous. That's what's happening in our passage this morning. God was bringing his people into places and circumstances that just looked really hard and risky. Could they really trust God in those moments? And what we will discover in our passage is that by faith, God calls his people to trust his promises and his power, even when it doesn't make sense, even when things are risky. 
You might remember if you've been here with our, for our series in Hebrews that the author is writing to a group of Jewish Christians who are being persecuted or at least facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And, and he's been exhorting them to stand firm in their faith because they've been tempted, because of this persecution, they've been tempted to leave Christ, to walk away from him, and to go back to their former religious practices in Judaism. Forgetting that all those things that, that they had done in Judaism actually pointed forward to ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. The author understands that if they were to enter God's eternal rest, that is to enjoy eternal life within God's kingdom, with their Savior Jesus for eternity, in order for that to happen, they must endure in their faith in Christ till the end, even if it's risky, even if it means facing suffering. This chapter that we're in, chapter 11, he reminds them of Old Testament believers who looked with eyes of faith to a future and a hope that they could not see, but that they had absolute, resolute assurance in that God who promised it, even when it was risky. So in these three short verses, the author gives us three snapshots of this kind of risky faith. So our first main point, first snapshot, crossing the Red Sea, trusting God's promise and power when things look hopeless. Trusting his promise and power when things look hopeless. Verse 29 of our text says, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do so, the same were drowned. You'll find this story in Exodus chapter 14 in the Old Testament. Up to that point, uh, we discover that God had called Moses to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt. So Moses goes to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, uh, tells him to let the people go, but Pharaoh refuses. Most of you know this story. So God sends various devastating plagues in judgment against the Egyptians. And despite all these plagues, I mean, they were rough and they were bad. Pharaoh continues to resist. And then God brings one final plague. All of the firstborn in Egypt, every child, every animal, all the firstborn would be killed. But for the Jews, God provides a way of escape for that judgment. He tells them to, to kill a perfect lamb, take the blood of that lamb, put it on the doors of their homes. And when they do, God says that the angel of death would pass over those homes. When he sees the blood, no death for the Jewish children. That's what God does for everyone who trusts in what he provides for rescue. For the Egyptians, though, there was no such promise. And, and the firstborn all died. Pharaoh finally gives in when this happens. And he tells Moses to get the people out. And so they're set free. Things are looking pretty good for them. And then they come to the Red Sea. And at that point, Pharaoh changes his mind. And he chases the Israelites, ready to recapture them. He's got the strongest army in the world. He can make this happen easily. 
And so things are looking pretty bad for the Jews. They have the Egyptian army behind them. They have the Red Sea in front of them. There's nowhere to go, and it looks like certain annihilation. And the Jews start freaking out. And they're crying out to God. And then they start doing something that's really helpful when things look bad. They got sarcastic. <laughs> so Moses, were there no graves in Egypt that you bring us out here in the wilderness to die? That was helpful, right? And then they pull out the old standard, I told you so, right? Didn't we say... Leave us alone that we might serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve them than to die here. If I'd have been Moses, I'd have been like, what? Really? After all that God has done with the plagues and the Passover, God's been leading you with this pillar of fire and cloud, whatever that looked like, this supernatural thing. You would think that when they got to the Red Sea... That they would say, oh, this is an easy one for God. <laughs> no. No. They were terrified because it looked hopeless. And I would say uh, that most of us might have done the same as them, don't you think? Maybe we get in what seems like an impossible or hopeless situation. We're, we're between, between a rock and a hard place and we begin to fret and panic and think there's no way that God can fix this. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? What did God do with the Jews? Did he abandon them because they're freaking out? No. He spoke to them. He just spoke to them. That in itself is an amazing, gracious encouragement. That even when you... You, child of God, when you are overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, God does not abandon you. His heart is to help you. That's amazing. And so Moses says, guys, don't, don't be afraid. Just, just calm down and listen. Listen to what God says. What did God say? He said, They're gonna, he's going to fight for you. And you will never see those Egyptians again. Never. And at this point, I, I kind of imagine the, the, the Hebrews like kind of looking behind them, seeing the Egyptians, seeing the Red Sea in front of them. And they're just kind of like shutting their eyes in fear. And then at some point, somehow they believe. God gives them faith to believe. They open their eyes and the sea starts to part. And they pass through the water by faith, by faith. Sometimes God brings us to these seemingly impossible places. And in those moments, we need God to open our eyes, not the eyes in our heads, right? Because those are eyes tend to focus on what's right in front of us, focus on the trouble. We need God's words, the word of God to open our spiritual eyes, where his word replaces the trouble and we see a whole new perspective. What feels hopeless or impossible for you today? Do you look at your trouble and think, God, this is just not going to work? 
I, I don't even know where God is in this. Can you trust God for what seems impossible? At least to sustain you through it. Because he wants to help. And he's powerful to help. Isn't it an addiction? A besetting sin and temptation? Is it forgiving someone who has really, really hurt you? Is it asking forgiveness because you've hurt somebody else? Is it talking to friends and family about the hope you have in Jesus like Hadassah? Is it crippling anxiety, overwhelming grief and sadness, collapsing finances, relational hardship, whatever it might be, it could be something worse than any of those. What does faith look like then? It's believing what God says and not what our eyes see. It's a hard one. It's believing what God says and not what our emotions are saying. It's believing what God says, not my own opinions or what other people might think. So we go to God and we say, God, I don't know what's going on, but would you help me? What, what do you say about what's happening here? What do you say about how I am supposed to feel about this? What is in your word? And then, and then we have to do something that can seem like the hardest thing to do at that moment. Because, you know, when that's happening, all you want to do is for the problem to go away, Right? It happened to me this week. My spear is all rumpled and riled up. And I'm just like, I just, God, take it. But I knew I had to say, God, what do you say about this? What does your word say? How do you want me to think? And so we have to go and search the word. Even that can feel impossible at times. Because where do I go? Where do I look? That's where we can get a little help from our friends. That's where we go to other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, look, this is what's going on, and I'm really having a hard time. Can you help me? Would you pray with me? Do you have something that you could share with me? Some insight truth from God's word. And then, and then, Lord willing, you get something to hold on to and you ask God for grace even just to believe what it's saying. And then the power to rest in it. We, we got to be like that, that father in Mark chapter 9. You might remember the story. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. We, 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 our faith is there. We heard it last week. But sometimes this unbelief creeps in and we need God to do something. I do believe. Help my unbelief. These times are meant to remind us that there is something, there is someone greater than all my impossibilities. And that someone is for you. Don't ever think. Don't you ever think that when you're going through these, those things that God is like, oh, you better, you better get your act together before I help you. No, he's right there. Ready, willing, powerful to help. Think back to our passage. God delivered the Israelites from their bondage in Egypt, right? He promised to take them into a land that he swore to their forefathers centuries before. It's right in front of them. The land is right there. But he doesn't problem, promise that they're going to go through without any trials. 
or without exercising faith in what he has promised. That's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus. We were in bondage to sin. Nothing we could do to get out of it. We were stuck in it. We needed a deliverance from God himself. And he provided it in the blood of the lamb who is Jesus. So that eternal death would pass over us. And he would lead us into his kingdom. And then when that happens, sometimes we think it's going to be all honky-dory from now on. <laughs> no. We follow the way of Jesus. And what was Jesus' way? He suffered and then was given a crown of glory. If we follow in his way, do we think it's going to be any different for us? Just as God brought Jesus through suffering to glory, he will do that for you. For the sake of the gospel and into the glory of his kingdom forever. But it can only happen by faith. By faith. Can I trust that king to rescue me and bring me into his kingdom? That's our first snapshot of risky faith. Trusting God's promise and power when things seem hopeless. Second snapshot, verse 30. Conquering Jericho. Trusting God's promise and power when it looks foolish. We find this Story in the Old Testament book of Joshua chapter 6. The Israelites have been wandering the desert for 40 years. Because they didn't believe God when he told them to go in and conquer the land. But now with Joshua, there's a whole new generation. The disbelieving one has died off. And then Joshua, who by the way trusted God all along. Joshua is commissioned to lead the people out to conquer the promised land. And they come to this city of Jericho. This is one seriously fortified city. And it looks undefeatable with its massive walls. Some researchers say that the walls are so thick that two chariots could be uh, moving side by side going along the wall. It's a thick wall. And God tells Joshua he's given the city to him, to them, to the people. They haven't even gone there yet, but in God's eyes, it's a done deal. And then he tells Joshua how it's going to happen. He says, okay, you get the army. You get the army of Israel ready. Get the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the, the gold box that God instructed them to make. It, it would represent the presence of God among his people. Get the army. You get the covenant or the, the Ark. Get seven priests. They're going to have a bunch of ram's horns. You get the seven priests with their ram's horn to walk before the Ark. Get some of the army in front of them. Some of the army behind them. And go to Jericho, walk around the city once a day for six days. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. After circling it seven times, the priests are going to blow their horn. The people are going to shout loud and long. And the walls will come down. Now, you got to wonder what Joshua is thinking at this point. Is he kind of doing like... I, I, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound quite right. Don't we need a battering ram? Shouldn't we be going in with our weapons and our shields? Shouldn't we be building ladders so we can climb the walls? But we don't get a report about Joshua like that. We don't hear any kind of doubt from him. In fact, all he does 
is respond with a resounding yes. That's what we're going to do, God. And so he tells the people. And they're like, okay, we got it. We're going in. So now you got to think of this as well. These, these are the grown children of the naysayers who didn't trust God 40 years or earlier. You think maybe they're struggling with questions too? Actually, there's no mention of unbelief in this new group. Why is that? Because God was preparing them to trust in his promises and power. How did he do it? He gave them faithful leaders like Moses and Caleb and Joshua. We see this in the opening chapters of Deuteronomy. They, they, they got a taste of God's power as these men led them into a successful military campaign against a couple of Canaanite cities. So they're, they're seeing something of the faithfulness of God that the earlier generation should have trusted in. Okay, they're seeing that. Moses is training them. Instructing them in the ways and the will of God. He warns them of the past failures of that earlier generation. He's explaining the law of God to them. He's showing them who God is and what he is like. And they understood how God protected and provided for them. And they, belie they believed he was worthy of their trust. So Moses has now died. He's gone. Joshua tells them God's plan to conquer, this, conquer the city. They're like, okay, that's it. We're going in. We trust God. And so they did all that God said. Believing God even when it looked foolish. And the walls came tumbling down. What seemed like a cockamamie way of defeating an enemy was exactly what God had planned. And it says it happened by faith. He said it, they believed it, he did it. Now the world might say, well, that's foolish. That's just ridiculous. Why would you believe that? It's not foolish to God. Is God telling you to do something foolish? Or that seems foolish? That the world, or maybe even some in the church, might say, well, that's dumb. Don't do that. Why would you do that? That's a waste of time. Maybe you're dealing with a difficult spouse. Ladies, maybe you have a difficult husband. And God says, pray for them, love them, and dare I say it, submit to them. Now, I'm not talking about, you know, hear me here. I'm not talking about abusive men who want you to do humiliating or sinful things. That's happening to you. You need to talk to somebody. Come and talk to one of the pastors. I'm talking about your average, run-of-the-mill, dif difficult husband, and I'm sure there's a bunch of you out there. God says, God says, you trust him, God, by putting your husband's will above your will. The world's going to be like, that's dumb. Don't let any man keep you under his thumb. Why would you do that? Because when you do, ladies, you will be a picture of how the church is supposed to submit itself to and love Jesus. 
and your husband will see something of the gospel in you. Guys, you have a challenging wife? God says, love her as Christ loved the church. What does that mean? Sacrificially. You sacrifice your interests for hers. You put her interests above your own. Wait, what? Your friends might say. And let her get the upper hand? Oh, no. Oh, no. So why do that? Because you will be living at be a living testimony of how Jesus loves his imperfect, sometimes not so lovely bride. You got someone in your life who is mean-spirited, critical, harsh, treating you like an enemy. You know what God says? Jesus says this. You love them. Okay, how do I do that? He says, pray for them. Do good to them and bless them, which means speak well of them. What? That's foolish. Why would I do that? Shouldn't I get back at them? Yes, that's what God says. Why? Because that's how God treated you. Listen now. Listen now. Why would you treat an enemy like that? Because that's how God treated you. It says that when we were enemies, Christ died for us. In fact, that's how he still treats you now, you follower of Christ who still struggles with sin even now. You got a fellow brother or sister in Christ, maybe right here in the church, who's really getting on your nerves and you'd rather chew glass than hang out with them? The Bible says, consider that person. Now listen, these are serious words. The Bible says, consider that person more significant than yourself. And don't be concerned merely for your own interests, but for the the interests of that other person. Why? That sounds dumb. Because that's what Jesus did when he left the glories of heaven and became a man, took on flesh forever in order to serve and give his life as a ransom that we might be united to God forever by faith. I'm not saying any of this is easy, and it may look foolish to some, but when we trust God in these ways, we are displaying to the world what Jesus is like. What about talking to others, family, friends, about the gospel message of Jesus? Now, you might think to yourself, there he goes again, talking about evangelism. I don't want to hear about that. Well, I want to tell you a story. I spoke with a young woman this week. Um, She's from one of our sister churches in in, um, Sovereign Grace who's planning to go on one of our mission trips. And she said, I was saved when I was six. And when I was 12, I rededicated myself to the Lord because I knew that heaven was real and hell was real. And I knew God wanted me to tell people about that. 12 years old. 
And she said, just what we read in, in, in Romans chapter 10, how will they believe if they have not heard? And how will they hear without someone proclaiming it? It's gonna, you might feel foolish doing it. People might think you're a bit off. Because it's hard, right? It's hard. People might think you're, you're a little bit too enthusiastic, a little too holier than thou, or they just might kind of smile condescendingly and like, that's nice. We do it because God says, God's word, God says, that's how he's going to save people, through your seemingly foolish witness for him. What about going to a place where people need the gospel? A hard place. Because there's no missionaries there. You know why there's no missionaries there? Because it's a hard place. No churches. So few Christians. They can't do evangelism or church planting in any clear way. People say, well, don't go there. That would be foolish. That's dangerous. Do you subject your family to that? Are you going to leave family for that? There's plenty of people right here that need to hear the gospel. Don't go do that. That's true. There are plenty of people here that still need to hear the gospel. The problem is, is God calls us to that. Calls the church to that. At least to participate in some active way. Even if you don't go. Are you praying? Are you giving? Are you sending people? Can we do that? Because God said it? You may have heard of a man named William Borden. Maybe you haven't. He went to Yale. So this was one bright guy. He was popular, athletic, influential, and he happened to be loaded. He was a millionaire. You may have heard of the Borden Dairy. That's, he was the heir. And he gave his entire fortune away. He believed God called him to go to an unreached Muslim people group in China. And when one of his best friends heard that he was planning to do this, he told Borden, you're throwing yourself away becoming a missionary. And when Borden heard what his friend said, he wrote in his Bible, no reserve. After graduating from Yale, he is offered some serious high-paying jobs with a bright future, and he turned them all down. And he wrote another two words in his Bible, no retreat. He left everything, started making his way to China. On the way, he stops in Egypt to study Arabic because this is a Muslim people group he's going to. He contracts spinal meningitis in Egypt, and he dies never making it to the mission field. And while he is on his deathbed, he writes two more words in his Bible. No regrets. No reserve. No retreat. No regrets. People may have called him a fool. He was no fool. He did not regret following the way of the cross. Listen to what the Bible says. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly, foolishness, to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23, same chapter. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly, foolishness, to the Gentiles, but to those who are the called, 
both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The way of sacrifice and trusting God when it's not to our advantage sounds utterly foolish to the world. And perhaps it may to some of you here today. But you know what Jesus says? Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Please don't let that just kind of wash over you. Please. Most of us live a pretty comfortable Christian existence. And we don't necessarily do a whole lot of cross-bearing or denying ourselves. Let's just be honest. If we did, it would radically transform our marriages, our personal evangelism, our churches, our children, our gospel mission. And it's not beyond any one of us. By grace, God calls us to this by faith. And he is powerful to help us in it. And we can encourage each other in it. That's our second snapshot. God conquering the city of Jericho with what seems foolish. Third snapshot of risky faith, verse 31. This is Rahab's rescue, trusting God's power and promise when it seems dangerous. Uh, You can read about Rahab's story in Joshua, Old Testament, Joshua chapter 2. Essentially what happens is uh, Joshua sends out a number of spies to check out the land of Canaan, in particular the city of Jericho. That's going to be their first stop. And as they go there, they make their way to the house of a prostitute named Rahab. Now, that brings up all kinds of questions in our mind. Why are those Jews going to a prostitute's house? Got to remember, they were people of faith. They're being trained in the law of God. They're not going there for her services. My guess is that they're just, other guys are going. They're kind of mixing in, so they're not seen. Whatever it might be. Rahab heard about the people of Israel and how God brought them through the Red Sea and how he had defeated, through them, how he had defeated a couple of other Canaanite people. So when the spies come to her, she confesses her faith in their God and that she says, I I know the Lord has given the land to you. So she promises to hide them and help them. And she asks them, listen, when you come back to conquer the city, would you please save me and my family? Would you please do that? And the spies promise to do so as long as she keeps their secret safe. And she does. By faith in their God, she hides the spies and ensured their escape. And so Rahab trusts God's promise and power when it was really dangerous. How was it dangerous? Because the king of Jericho already heard about these spies. And he heard that they went to her house. So he sends word to her. He says, I know the spies are there. Bring them out. If the king finds out that she's been hiding them, she is a goner. She risks her, her life, her family's life, to save these men. And she does it by faith And when they come back and the walls come crashing down, a part of the wall which she lived in did not. And the spies came and got her out. Rahab was rescued. Now, this story is an intriguing one 
but it could make us cringe a little bit. Because we're talking about a prostitute, right? We're talking about a, a, a woman who gives her body to men for money. This is um, not polite dinner conversation, and it can repulse us. Because we look at someone like Rahab and we think, well, I'd never do that. Friends, if God's gracious restraining hand was not at work in our lives, we do not know the depths of depravity we would find ourselves in. Now, we may never do what Rahab did, but at the very least, every one of us is a heart adulterer. Everyone. Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. I say to you, do not even look in lust, because then you will commit adultery in your heart. So I'm going to be really generous here, and let's say you've never really lusted in your life. Even if you're not a heart adulterer, we are all spiritual adulterers. We are all spiritual prostitutes. I know that's a hard one to take, but here's why. Because we've all gone after other lovers other pleasures, other pursuits, other idols, other people, other things that we have worshipped before we have loved and worshipped God. And so Rahab is us, and we are her. The question is, do you know that? Because God, he saves spiritual prostitutes like you and me. And if he didn't, friends, we'd be in big trouble. We'd be in a dangerous place. We'd be without hope, without God in the world. But if we're in Jesus, we are no longer in that dangerous place. There is therefore now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. Rahab the prostitute, did you know? She married a prince of the tribe of Judah. And she became the great-great-grandmother of King David, which means that she was the great-great-great-great-great, however many greats, grandmother of the Lord Jesus Christ. Prostitute, princess, family of God. That's us. If we are in Jesus, by faith. However, when we do come to him, he will put us in places and circumstances that really are sometimes dangerous for the sake of the gospel. This takes me back to where I began with Hadassah, the Muslim woman who told her family that she became a Christian. When we look at the three snapshots in our passage, we see that God repeatedly delivered these people. He got them out of danger. I'd like to tell you that God protected Hadassah and kept her from suffering. Actually, after talking to her family, they locked her up like a captive in her home. They took her phone away. She couldn't call for help. She couldn't contact her new Christian friends who could encourage her. Her husband, who actually was really understanding and kind when, when she converted, began to be pressured by her family and then he became abusive with her. 
All she could do was pray and endure by faith. Now, she, you know, she could have said, okay, you know what? I, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to follow Jesus anymore. I'm coming back to Islam. But she didn't. By faith, she trusted in God's promise and power when it was dangerous, when it was risky. She was looking to him who is unseen and to a reward of eternal rest for all who endure by faith. You see, these snapshots aren't promises that God's going to deliver us out of all of our trials, at least not right away. What they are are pointers to look to what is unseen, to the God who will one day deliver us out of all of our troubles. How do I know that? Because when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Father, take this. Remember, this is just before his crucifixion. He says, Father, take this cup from me. What's the cup? It's a cup of suffering. A cup that God is putting all of his wrath towards sin on Jesus for all who would believe. He's taking it all. So he says, remove this from me. And you know what God's answer was? Silence. Why? Because by not delivering Jesus from that suffering, he would rescue us from what causes all suffering, our sin and the sin that is in the world. But Christ would not only die, he would also rise, ensuring that all who come to him will also rise to eternal rest where we will be delivered from all our troubles. This is what the author of Hebrews is pointing us to. And it happens by faith. I'm going to ask Hudson and Robin to come out at this point as we wrap up. I realize we may not be facing persecution like those Hebrew Christians, but God may be moving us to do things and attempt things for the sake of the gospel. And please know, I'm not just talking about evangelism and missions here. Okay? What I'm talking about is anything that might bring us suffering in a life of faith and obedience to God. Things that can seem helpless or hopeless, foolish, and even risky. So why do it? Why do it? Because like the men and women of this chapter, these heroes of faith, it says they had a better country, a better city to look forward to. They were not going to just be satisfied with the land they were going into. They had eyes of faith to see something more. Listen to what verse 16 says. As it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And like them, our hope cannot be in this world. We are exiles and aliens here. This is all temporary. We can't put our hope here. So we look ahead to the heavenly city by faith that will sustain us while we're here until we get there. God has begun this. He has given us this hope. It has entered our hearts now, and he wants us to spur one another on to endure by faith. Whereas we sang earlier, love is our reward, and Christ is our treasure.
forevermore. So we need help for this, right? I need help. Do you? I need, I need strong help, a power beyond myself to endure in this faith. So let's go to him in a song of prayer, pouring out our hearts, declaring once again our trust in his power and his promise to be all he needs to be for us in Jesus. <laughs>